When I have the opportunity as today to come and sit and offer some reflections on the teachings of the Buddha, I like to take a moment just to pause and express my own sense of appreciation for these teachings and really for the life, his life, the life of this remarkable human being. And it's kind of a traditional way. And it's kind of strange in a certain way. And at the same time, it's something that I find makes me happy. I to just come down and bow to the Buddha. And actually, I know he's not actually there. It's just a kind of piece of bronze. But it represents something. Something about what's possible for us. And uh, the Buddha's life expressed something for me very inspiring. He was deeply interested in and deeply concerned about his life and really all of life, I think. And he dedicated it in a, a remarkably committed way to exploring, to understanding, to discovering for himself and really, in a way, on behalf of all of us, what is fundamental in the search and the exploration that I think we're all concerned in or concerned with. The, the exploration, the search for what it is that brings fulfillment, happiness, meaning, a sense of wholeness to our life, a sense of healing to our world. And his journey began with a recognition and understanding and acknowledgement of the, the experience of, of suffering, of unsatisfactoriness, of struggle, of limitation, of a sense of bondage we can sometimes encounter, we can perhaps recognize in ourselves. And having begun from that place of acknowledging struggle, suffering, limitation, through his own practice and journey he came to discover freedom, the release of the human heart and mind from that bondage, from that suffering, from that entanglement and limitation. Now I remember the first Dharma book that I found when I was traveling in India, not long after I'd set my first retreat, and I actually don't think I had a clue what was going on for the whole 10 days, but I did it and thought, hmm, I think I should probably do some more of that. Although part of me didn't really want to because it was quite hard work. Perhaps we can relate to that. And I found this book by a, um, <coughs> a monk whose name was Nyanaponika Terra, which means elder. He was a, a German Buddhist monk. And he had written a book, a wonderful book, The Heart of Buddhist Meditation. And in one of the early paragraphs of the book, there was a phrase or a sentence. He said, this, or he wrote, this heart-mind is bound all over. And yet it can know freedom here and now. And the simple expression, simple articulation of what the Buddha's teachings are equally speaking to us. Acknowledging this boundness, this experience of courtness that we so often recognize in our experience. And yet also the possibility of release, of freedom. And in the Buddha's teachings... Mindfulness is very much the vehicle of our travel. And we speak a lot about mindfulness. But the, the, pr 
process of releasing our heart and mind is is predicated on a process of understanding that arises through being awake, through being present. And the fundamental understanding, amongst many perhaps, that we are invited to contemplate, that the Buddha discovered, the Buddha articulated, is his very profound and deep seeing of the way we become attached, the way we become entangled and it seems ensnared in the midst of our experience. And that this process of becoming attached is the condition from which we can see and recognize the arising of suffering, of limitation, of bondage. And in that understanding, the Buddha is not suggesting this is somehow the first cause, and maybe it's sometimes articulated this way, that... uh, Craving and clinging are the cause of suffering, which in a certain way, of course, is true. But it's not suggesting a first cause, as in this is somehow the beginning of the the universe kind of first cause. It's more understanding that dukkha, as we've spoken about it, the word the Buddha used, it arises conditional upon, consequent to, this process of craving and clinging. Attachment, or the the word the Buddha used, upadana. It's an interesting word to reflect upon because, in fact, the way it breaks down, and I'm no Pali scholar by any means, um, I have to rely on others far more learned than myself in that regard. But actually, the word is the root of the word is. uh, is actually dana, which you may know is the expression of generosity, and adana which is non-generosity, so A is a negation, so not generosity, then upa is like an intensifier, so very much lots of not generosity. It's probably a little more graceful when we just say upa adana. But it's an interesting sense that it gives of a very strong holding on, insofar as you might understand generosity as a sense of releasing, as a sense of sharing, rather than kind of taking hold of. And I think it's no accident that the Buddha places that practice of sharing very much at the heart of his teachings, not just because it's good for our heart and good for our world when we share things, but because it also expresses something fundamental to what has been lost in the process of clinging the process of craving, of clinging, and becoming attached to experience in which we become bound and by which we become entangled. So we're perhaps invited to to contemplate or to reflect upon this, this teaching and this possibility that relinquishment, that letting go, that releasing... Sometimes we could talk about it as renunciation, as a sense of giving away or letting go of our hold upon whatever it is that we take hold of. That this is really the basis of freedom. This is really the basis from which suffering is released or the basis through which suffering, entanglement. And we've talked about this word in different ways and... um, 
there's no one way we have to conceive it. But I think understanding as a sense of bondage and limitation and entanglement is really helpful because rather than just talking about suffering per se as something painful or difficult, or as one of my, one of my teachers says, and I really like this phrase that, uh, that um, Ajahn Sachito uses, he says, that which is hard to bear. And it's kind of like, oh yeah, that which is hard to bear. That's a good way of saying it. Because it gives us the sense of our subjective experience and relationship to that which we call suffering. But in itself, that which is hard to bear is not entanglement. It is not limiting. It is not binding. It's what happens in relationship to that that we need to understand. So the sense of of letting go, of releasing. This is, as well as the basis for freedom, for the end of entanglement, it's equally the foundation of kindness and of sharing, that sense of offering and contributing. And it's interesting to see the, the natural instinctive way we might express it, and I find myself doing it without even thinking, so with the open hands. And we can contrast that to the sort of the closed fist, the sense of tightness or the, the heldness and the contraction. And also the, you know, it can easily go from contraction, this is interesting, isn't it, to aggression. We hold on to things and then we've got already an item we could use for violence. Whereas this is a much more sort of open, a sort of friendly quality. And we sometimes see the Buddha, in fact the standing Buddha, um, there's a couple of them around, I think one in the dining room, see the hand like this. It's expressed as an expression, it's understood as an expression of metta, of friendliness, of open-handedness. And we see that as a contrast to the tightness of, of craving, of clinging, of holding on. And we can experience it as a relief, just in the simple, oh, what's it like to open and feel the sense of openness in our heart, in our mind? And this capacity to open, to open our hand, to open our hearts, to offer what we have, to share what we have, to share our very lives. In fact, this is really the foundation of happiness. This is what fills our hearts. This is what heals our world. And this, I think, therefore, is something we want to be interested in. It serves us to be engaged with. And... You know, so often we start to find ourselves measuring our practice according to what happens in the meditation. You know, how quiet my mind was, how calm my mind was, how upright my body was, or all those, or how long I was sitting here for, or how long before I had to make that adjustment that I was hoping I wouldn't have to make. All of those things we get into measuring and comparing and, oh, how well am I doing? You know, they're not what it's about the bottom line and the end that's going to make the difference to our life, our heart, our world, is actually much more to do with what I can let go of. And equally, what I can share. What I can offer to this world. It's not about meditation performance here. And it takes time. It takes patience, in fact. And patience is one of those qualities that... uh, you know, we might have a mixed relationship. What's that sort of phrase, you know? You know, give me patience, quickly. 
sort of that imploring request. I need it now. So give yourself space to find your way here. I, I really love the story. I can't remember who told it to me. I've shared it many times. Apparently, some time ago, a, uh, an experienced meditator of 20 years committed practice had a very precious and rare opportunity to meet with His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. And he went to this audience very excited and interested and hopeful to find out some solutions to all the struggles of his life and his practice. And he explained them and His Holiness sat there and listened, smiled, nodded. And he was talking about the difficulties of meditation and why this was happening and that. And sort of paused, hoping for some, you know, sort of solutions and answers and ways to fix it. And the story reports that His Holiness nodded and smiled. He said, yes, he said, yes, it's difficult, you know, in the early years of practice. (laughs) And it's just so helpful, isn't it? Oh, the first 20 years, they're the early years. And maybe even more than that is the first, is the early years. It's like when we have that sense, we give ourselves permission. We don't fixate on an idea of where I should have got to, what it should look like. Equally, you know, it's not that we kind of become complacent. Oh, well, there's plenty of time, you know, no rush. It's not like that. But at the same time, not imposing upon oneself some idea of where I should have got to by now or what it should look like by now. Because a lot of what's happening is just like we use the image, I think maybe Chris used it, a couple of days ago of cultivation and that gardening, a lot of it's happening under the surface. We don't get to see it until we see it. And we don't always know when that's going to be. But what we can do as we look at our practice is see what's going on in our minds and our hearts. Because what's going on in here is not going on just because I'm on retreat or you're on retreat. It's going on because this is what goes on and while we're here, we get to see it more clearly. And it's not just going on in here. It's going to be going on in the people sitting next door. It's going to be going on in the world around us. Because that's what happens. Things go on, it seems, until we see what's going on more clearly. And so much of what's going on is that we're playing out. We're living in a view and a perspective that suggests what the basis of fulfillment will be. And it's essentially a materialistic orientation. A socially sanctioned and encouraged materialism that says to us, fulfillment, happiness, well-being, satisfaction. The end of dukkha, we could say. That will come to us if we follow a particular strategy of behavior. And the, the most familiar and obvious one is the idea that getting possessions Having more things will do it for us. And we can see the message all around us. It's coming to us in so many ways. Have more things and you'll look like these happy people. Because they're happy with things. Look at them. There's more things. And you know, I don't imagine that too many of you here are convinced by that particular argument because, you know, why come along to a retreat where for seven days you're not going to give you any things? You're not going to leave here with more things. There's other places you could go for that, you know. It's one of the main recreational activities in our culture now, isn't it? Going to the place where you can get more things and walking around looking at things. (laughs) And then taking some more things home. (laughs) Amazing. 
The second level is of, of materialism, which is perhaps more subtle, is the idea that having certain experiences will provide me fulfillment. Now, this is the one that's a little more tricky for us because we come along to meditation retreat and probably we imagine that actually, yeah, I do want to have some good experiences, some sort of expansive experiences, some uplifted experiences, some spiritual experiences, maybe some mystical experiences. All those experiences we've heard of, read of, maybe we even had some once and we'd quite like to have them again. You know, we might be part of that relatively small proportion of um, human beings who would like to have some spiritual experiences. You heard about that, perhaps that research that was done, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago. They found that about 80% of people surveyed in the United States of America had, had reported having had a spiritual experience. And about 85% of them said they did not want to have another one. <laughs> Probably those aren't the people who come on a retreat. I'm guessing. I don't know. This is certainly not the best way to avoid having a spiritual experience, if that's what you were here for. I mean, there are other things on offer. But, but we come into this, and there's a lot of value. We can learn a lot, and we do learn a lot through our experience, and yet we can have the idea and the subtle or not-so-subtle idea that somehow I'm going to get a certain, in a way, um, I don't know, portfolio of experience which will be my fulfillment, which will be my completion, which will be the, sort of the, what I can present at the end of the day, the end of the retreat, or maybe the end of my life, and say, yep, I've done it. It was a good one. Look at that. You know, give me a, an A plus or whatever. An A star, if you're being marked in England. And this one's a little trickier for us here. So often we're looking at our experience and wondering, is this the right, the best, the good, the one that's going to do it for me? And the next level in which we see materialism playing out, and it's materialism because it's got this orientation towards getting, having, keeping, collecting, amassing, and somehow imagining we can hold on to. Experience. And the deeper and perhaps most fundamental element or expression or level, we could say, of materialism that goes on is the process of what we could call endeavouring to become someone. Trying to somehow gather to ourselves a basis, a framework, a foundation for a sense or a definition of who I am, of what I am, or even just that I am, but something that gives me something that confirms and validates me and my existence. That we imagine to be something different or other than who and what we already are. And that, again, is a form of materialism that we, as human beings, can find ourselves easily caught in. And the underlying kind of common factor in any materialistic pattern is not that it's about material things per se, like, you know, more things, but that it's suggesting that a particular kind of possessory condition will bring me fulfillment. If I have this thing, if I have this experience, if I have this sense of self, that's a good one, a spiritual one, a happy one, a fulfilled one, a healed one, a together one. 
whatever we might imagine that to be. And the result of that, or the effect of that is that these kind of beliefs or these ideas start to create a sense of um, applying value to experience. We start to attribute value to experience on the basis of whether or not it's going to fulfill that image or idea of what I want to have, what I want to experience, or who I want to be or who I believe I should be. And because of that, we start to put pressure on the content of the experience to conform with whatever will enable that possibility. Experience becomes either the solution or the obstacle. And that's something interesting to contemplate, important to contemplate. Experience, if we see it as either the obstacle, it's the problem, I've got to fix it, or the solution, I've got to get it to be the right version of experience, we are inevitably entangled with it. And we cannot easily know the possibility of freedom that our heart and mind can know. So we sometimes come on a retreat with a sense of like, this is going to be a great spiritual shopping trip. You know, I'm going to the best mall in America. It's the one that's been there the longest. They've got great shops, you know, spiritual goods on offer in a metaphorical sense. As uh, Jack Cornfield, one of the senior teachers of this tradition and one of the founders of IMS, he, he once observed, you know, we come on a retreat imagining it's like, going to the store, but it's not. He says, it's actually going, coming on a retreat is more like going for a trip to the dump. <laughs> where you get rid of your trash. Or more specifically, where we learn to let go of what we no longer need to carry with us. Which we hold on to in the hope and the imagination that it will fulfill us or serve us, but in fact, it simply weighs us down. So in this context, we speak about, and these teachings point to this, this understanding and this, the importance of reflecting on this relationship where attachment, taking hold of, contracting around experience, leads to suffering, to entanglement, to disconnection. It's important to distinguish attachment used in this way, that, using that word in this form, to distinguish it from the psychological term attachment, which actually refers to a, a necessary and healthy connection, bonding, and relationship that forms in the um, early developmental stages of, the, of, of a human life between the, um, the baby, the infant, and whoever is providing the primary care and mothering, we could say, for them. And that's something actually really necessary and healthy, and it almost never happens perfectly, but... Nonetheless, it's just important to name that's not the attachment that's being pointed to in these teachings and saying this leads to suffering. It's just using the same word to talk about a different thing. 
the characteristic or the defining element of attachment as I'm using it as one I think could use it in this context that is harmful, that is limiting, is shown by the way that it creates a tendency or a, more than a tendency, it creates quite reliably a sense of pressure upon experience, a pressure upon the world and ultimately and inevitably a pressure upon oneself to somehow conform to my desires and my preferences, to my views, to my fantasies, to my hopes, to my beliefs. And that pressure that we experience is that in a way what we I think could understand the way that Dukkha, bondage, limitation, expresses itself as contraction, tightening, and the loss of possibility, the loss of the freedom to move freely because of the binding, the contracting, the tightening effect that holding on happens. And we've, we've mentioned that we can even notice this in our body when we tighten in reaction to something that's difficult that we want to get rid of or something that's desirable that we want to get hold of. We can notice how this happens. We can, when we pay attention to our bodies, one of the great and important reasons for doing this is that it gives us information about what's going on. We can't grasp or engage in that clinging and attachment without it showing up in the body as tightening. It's inevitable. And sometimes we can see it and recognize it there first. So I'd like to speak a little further about what the Buddha described as the four great attachments. And it's not, obviously, you know, like these four things, they're great. You really want to have these. They're great. It's not that kind of great. It's like really big, really significant, not to be taken lightly. The four great attachments. And the first of these is the attachment to sense pleasure. Simple in a way. We all know it and recognize it. We like things that we like. And we like to have more things of what we like. And we don't like things we don't like. It's kind of self-explanatory really, isn't it? And we'd really like to have less of those things that we don't like. I mean, is there anyone else, sorry, is there anyone here for whom that doesn't seem pretty clear? I mean, and yet, what happens in that? If we look and see, what we notice is the kind of a hunger, a sense of, I need things to be in a certain way, or else I'm going to be unfulfilled, or else I'm going to be unhappy, or else it's like there's a sense of lack that so often underpins our looking for experience, our seeking to have things the way I want them. A sense of unfulfillment pervades our life if we look for fulfillment in things that can't give it that to us. And yet, we have the tendency strongly to do so. And that sense of wanting something else or wanting something more is so strong that it's actually even hard to enjoy what we have. And I remember one of for it's, it's kind of, a, well, I'll tell the story rather than say what happened. Or the thing. I had a, had a really good lesson on this once when um, uh, I was on retreat and uh, 
the cooks at the retreat centre, this is at Guy House in England, the retreat centre near where Christina and I live, and um, where Christina and I live in different places. <laughs> Just in case there was any confusion. <laughs> and the cooks on that day had made a meal of lasagna. And I don't know if I'm related to Garfield, but anyway, I like lasagna. Like, I really like lasagna. And they'd put on a sign, you know, um, you know moderate portions. Because probably everybody likes, or lots of people like, lasagna. And... Uh, it's a lovely sort of vegetarian lasagna with cheese and yummy things in it. And just moderate portions. So I remember going quite quickly once I realised what was happening, as close, you know, to get my food. And there's the sign, okay, moderate. Okay, how big is moderate? Okay, about that big. It's the biggest thing that could be still moderate. I'll take that much. <laughs> and then I sat down, and the first mouthful, yum. Mm. And the second mouthful was, wow, I'm going to want more of this. But, and the third thought was, what if it's all gone by the time I've finished? And there won't be enough for seconds. And I started speeding up, and I started shoveling this remarkably and exquisitely delicious lasagna into my mouth. More and more agitated, more and more anxious as I kept doing this. And you know, at the point where I'd finished eating what was in my plate... I was stuffed. I was full. It was actually a really large portion I took. Not moderate at all. I had not, I had not enjoyed eating it at all. I'd been so longing or hoping and desperate to get more of it than I had. Despite having this thing exactly as I wanted it. I couldn't enjoy it. And I didn't want any more afterwards. It's kind of tragic, actually. <laughs> and yet, something like that can happen to us so easily, it seems. Certainly it can happen to me. We notice this hungry mind, this looking, 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 always as if something different or something more. I either want something other than what I've got, or if I like what i got, I want more of it. This constant sense of hunger, of looking, this expresses this, this tendency. And we, we see it, you know, the, the way in which we just look for something to entertain our minds on a retreat because there's not much going on. And, you know, I don't know if you read the labels on the tea bags. <laughs> I'm not even sure if they have them here. Cause, but certainly in some places, I've, it's the only place I ever read the label on the tea bag is when I'm on retreat, because it's like, give me something to entertain me. And again, with that looking for sense pleasure, looking for entertainment, the tenth time we read the schedule in the hope that something more exciting will happen. <laughs> but it's the same schedule we read earlier in the day. And... Previous, and I know it did change from yesterday's, but it's going to stay the same now for quite a few days. I'm sorry. <laughs> but that's, even when we know that, and even I know that, and I might go and look at it again. It's like there's, there's this, this kind of being able to recognize that kind of pull, that kind of hunger that goes on. And begin to find a sense of balance, a sense of sitting back into, okay, here's that sense and that imagination, that belief, I need to get or get hold of a certain configuration of experience. Because that's not really what this practice is about. That doesn't mean we disregard or in any way reject that which is delightful, 
that which is uplifting. And we've, we've, we've named that and expressed, you know, just as we've said, to be with that which is difficult is important. Equally, to be with that which is delightful, which is lovely, is important, is essential. And to understand what that means. And I think it's expressed rather beautifully in the language of, of William Blake, the British poet. He wrote, He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. He who kisses the joy as it flies lives on in eternity's sunrise. Beautiful. Whole teaching in just a few words. That sense of when we bind ourselves, when we take hold of what gives us joy, what, what comes is something in movement, in flight, we could say. It has a fluidity and a lightness to it. And when we take hold of it, when we bind ourselves to it, it's no longer alive. It no longer gives us that sweetness, that delight, because the very effect of the pressure, the taking hold of, the, it's like binding ourselves to a joy destroys the winged life, that sense of flight, of freedom, of movement. But to make intimate contact with it, the sense of the kiss, beautiful, just to kiss the joy. It's not holding back, saying, oh, that stuff's dangerous, you know, we don't go near nice things, what if I get attached? You know, that kind of rather tragic misunderstanding of Dharma teachings that sometimes one hears. It's sort of like, push them away, keep keep yourself safe and distant from anything nice, and then you won't get attached. It's like, no, to allow yourself to touch it, to be intimate with it. She who binds herself to a joy does the winged life destroy. She who kisses the joy as it flies lives on in eternity's sunrise. And again, to touch something there in that ability to make contact with what is delightful and yet not take hold of it. Eternity's sunrise. Blake is pointing to something, the dawn of the timeless. There's something to be discovered in that contact, in that possibility, to be able to be right there with what is sweet and delightful and not take hold of it. And we have many opportunities here to be touched. As we become more sensitive, as we become more open, the nature of this practice is it opens us so we start to feel things more deeply. Of course, difficult things we feel more deeply. Indeed, but equally sweet, beautiful, delightful and uplifting things become more available to us because we're more present. And if we can meet them in that sense of just let me be touched by this or let me touch it. I don't need to take hold of, but nor do I need to shy away from. Something profound is very near us in that place. They who kiss the joy as it flies live on in eternity's sunrise. So we can also reflect upon how much time and energy we spend.
trying to, how much of our mental activity is preoccupied with this process of trying to get more of what I like, what is pleasant and enjoyable, and trying to get rid of or avoid the contact with that which is unpleasant or difficult. In the realms of our posture, yeah, some of our work with it is because it's good for supporting practice, but some of it is because actually, you know, we just don't like being uncomfortable, which is understandable. I don't like being uncomfortable. But the body, sometimes it's not comfortable. And as I said in one of the groups this morning, you know, we may encounter, was it yesterday? I can't remember now. Maybe this morning or yesterday. Um, we're probably at some point in our life, if we haven't already, going to encounter something difficult We can't in our body, we can't adjust our way out of. It's not going to be a sore knee that I can just do that and it's gone and now it feels okay. It's going to be something going on in my body and it's just that's how it is. And if I want to be awake, I'm going to need to include this because the only other option is actually shutting my system down. And how we can kind of find ourselves longing for certain uplifting or nourishing or delightful or reassuring contacts from the world. You know, looking for nice food. Trying to avoid unpleasant food, you know. For me, when they put celery in things. It's like, oh, how do I get around that? I hope they cut it into large pieces so I can dig them out easily. I just don't seem to like celery. Apparently it's good for you. Apparently people think it tastes nice, but I'd rather not eat it. Sometimes it's really interesting just to eat it and go, oh, that's unpleasant. Hasn't killed me yet. But I still avoid it when I can. We might notice the sense of looking for kind of kindly or reassuring looks from our companions. And that's okay. It's not a bad thing. But notice if we start to sort of start becoming dependent or reliant on, I've got to. What if that person didn't look at me or smile at me? You know, someone else did, but I I want everybody to. It's probably not going to happen. Not here, not somewhere else either. And we can feel that sense of, oh, I need that, I want that. Or maybe contact with loved ones, which we're not getting to have here. That's not an easy thing to let go of, to say, I won't have contact with my loved ones who I regularly have contact with. And we might feel that, oh, that's painful, oh, that's not easy for me. Sure, but by finding in ourselves the kindness and the caring to hold ourselves in these places, we also find a greater degree of freedom. Because we realize we are not as dependent upon those things that we imagine we rely upon. But we don't usually find that out willingly or easily. We kind of... It takes a certain courage and dedication, a certain commitment just to see what it's like to inhabit the conditions as we find them rather than trying to reorganize them into conditions as we might wish or prefer them. So the the desire for the attachment to sense pleasure. Desire is fine, it's natural in that sense. Of course, that's what we wish for. But it becomes problematic when it turns into a demand that says, it must be so. That's where the dukkha really becomes serious. And that's where the sense and the possibility of 
of letting go, of releasing, of relinquishing, of opening and saying, okay, it's not how I wanted it, but that's how it is, is a remarkably powerful and transformative capacity to develop. The second of the, the great attachments that the Buddha spoke about, or the profound and powerful attachments, is the attachment to, to rites and rituals or practices and precepts, different translations we can find here. And it's an interesting one because I think a lot of us in the West think, oh, I'm not into that. You know, the Buddha was maybe talking about all those, you know, sort of kind of religious things where people go and do all sorts of strange rituals and, you know, you've got to sort of light a candle with your left hand and place it on the right side just like this and, you know, you've got to make sure you do it exactly that way and everyone should be just like this, wearing these kind of clothes. You know, that's the sort of thing we associate with rituals. And yet, although there may not be that much of it in our our particular world or in this tradition, or maybe it might seem to you that, you know, bowing and sort of certain things like that look like rituals. They could be such as such. But the key element of this attachment or this tendency we find in the human mind and heart that's universal is it's the idea or the belief that something can do it for me, in simple terms. There's something, it's a bit like a fairy godmother, Something or someone, no, maybe fairy godmothers sound a bit, you know, beyond what we're really believing in these days, but something that can do it for me, that somehow if I just go through these steps, if I fulfill these criteria, if I do it just like that, then somehow all by itself and coming out of that fulfillment of the formula or the mechanism or the, the protocol, freedom will emerge or liberation will be revealed or things will just get better if we're a bit more modest in what we're interested in. And we tend to engage in this process really quite unconsciously, and it's useful to become conscious about it. Because we don't have a lot of obvious ritual that we get everyone to do, it's really interesting to notice how we might start to think that 45 minutes is the right amount of meditation. You know, 45 minutes becomes sometimes a little bit of a ritual. Or in other places it might be 30 or 60 or whatever the length of the sitting is. But it's like that's the amount that's the right amount. And if I can't quite do that much, you know, something's wrong. I often observe and reflect upon the idea, you know, the Buddha never had a timekeeping piece of equipment, as far as I know. He probably never sat for a fixed amount of time. And yet so often we orient towards that. Or the kind of forms we use, like slow walking meditation. And I've seen at times, and it felt myself even have the response, someone walks quickly through a bunch of people walking slowly, and it's like, how dare they? You know, what do they think they're doing? And it's like we've somehow made this into some kind of thing that we've given a greater degree of significance than in itself it has. I'm not saying that it isn't powerful and beneficial that we sit for 45 minutes or that we walk quite slowly sometimes. But there's a way in which we think, if I just do it like this, then that'll make it happen. I remember one of my early retreats in India and the instructions were very precise. and You've got to do it just like this. And at some point, halfway or three quarters of the way through a sitting, I opened my eyes and started looking around, which was definitely not in the instructions. And someone came up from the front. It was someone sort of 
one of the staff or something, really angry and quite loud, said to me, how can you meditate with your eyes open? And I was, oh, gosh. I, I did have the thought, well, how did you see me with your eyes closed? <laughs> but that sense of, it felt like for this person, there was some attachment to the idea that I have to do it the way I've been told. And we can have this, we can see this in ourselves, you know. It's probably not going to be happening here because there's three of us. But when I teach by myself, what I've noticed reliably, without saying a thing, if I don't tell people where to put their hands, and I always put my hands on my knees, two or three days in, the vast majority of people sitting cross-legged have got their hands on their knees. If I put my hands here, I just noticed this. I wasn't doing it deliberately. If I put my hands here, after a while, people start to have their hands here. And we kind of get the idea, that's the right way, that's how I've got to do it. So these days I mostly alternate between having my hands here and having them here. Because I don't want to give a message that this is the right way, or that if you do it this way it's going to work. Because it's not about that. There's a, a balance to be found between thinking that like I've got to make it happen, which is one extreme, or it's somehow going to do this thing for me and I just need to plug into it in kind of like in a mechanical process. When we say, if I just do it mechanically and it's going to do it for me, that's where we're kind of getting caught in that particular attachment. The attachment to rites and rituals, to practices and precepts. The attachment being the belief that if I just do it right, it'll work. It'll do it for me. In fact, we need our engagement Yes, the forms, yes, the tools, the frameworks, the techniques, they're all important, powerful. But we actually, there's something about our engagement in them that we don't give over the power to the thing, to the form. Equally, we don't try and claim it and say, I'm going to make it happen. But somewhere between the two, religious or spiritual practice have their transformative potency. The third great attachment that the Buddha spoke of is the attachment to views and opinions, to ideas and beliefs about the way things are. We can see in the world how the importance of being right, the attachment to my view, is the cause and the source of so much pain, so much conflict. Wars have been fought over views about the definition of words in the realm of spiritual teaching and practice. Religious views and being right is something most of us find compelling in some way or form. And it's understandable because it gives us a sense of security to believe we know how things are gives us a sense of predictability. As someone was saying in the group, again, I think it was this morning, you know, just not knowing what the weather is going to do, not being able to look on one's app and see what the weather is going to do, means we feel slightly less in control. Of what it's, there's an insecurity in that not quite knowing what's going to happen or how things will be. And so we hold very tightly. We attach, we contract around our beliefs, our views, our views about the world, our views about ourselves. 
In that book I mentioned earlier, The Heart of Buddhist Meditation, Yanaponika, another phrase of his that stayed with me over decades, he, he wrote, he said, True wisdom is always young and always close to the reach or near to the reach of an open mind that has painfully reached its heights and earned its right to hear it. That sense of wisdom being something young and available to an open mind, when we fixate, when we believe we really know how things are, even if we've learnt and had great insight and wisdom, these things even too can sometimes become places we fixate. And okay, I've seen that things change, now I know that's how it is. We might even become a sort of, you know, sort of holding up the banner, trying to convince all our friends, you know, it all changes. You know, go home, sort of the uh, sort of Buddhist fundamentalist. This is how it is. Everything changes except our view. That things change. We lose a sense of possibility for discovery when we believe we already know. And the Buddha spoke specifically around views such as our belief in the nature of the world or the Buddha's mind and the way in which action leads to result and to do with rebirth and all these kinds of views. And we hear debates about this. And I'm not particularly interested in going into the, you know, the pros and cons of the different positions, but more looking at the basic framework of what happens to us when we think we know the way. And again, I'd just like to illustrate this with a, a story, an experience for myself, where I had a pretty uh, powerful lesson in this regard. I was teaching a retreat by myself in... Um, in Australia, in New South Wales, in a place called Wat Buddha Dharma, which was founded as a monastery and became a retreat centre in, um, in the Dara National Park, um, not that far from Sydney. And I'd arrived a couple of days before the retreat in order to just have a little time to get over the jet lag. It's a long way from England. I come from New Zealand. I don't live there anymore. Um, but I've been really looking forward to being at least close to New Zealand and uh, in Australia. And... When I was there, I had a couple of days before the course was due. I went for a, um, I went for a run up into the, to the hills. And at some point, it was very enclosed. And I saw a point, a place where I thought, I think I'll get a good view from there. So I left the path and I followed up the, the line of the ridge up to the top of the hill. Because I wanted to see around me what I could see. I hadn't been in a, in a proper forest for a long time. And I couldn't quite see anything because actually there were trees at the top. So I couldn't see any more up there. So I'll just go back down to the path, and I went down to the path, and I went down to the path, and I kept going down to the path, and the path wasn't there. And I thought, oh, oh, what happened? I'm quite experienced. I spent a lot of time in the wilderness. I wasn't concerned at all. I don't know where the path is. I just must have just missed it. I'll go back up to the top of the hill, and I'll find it. So I went back up to the hill, and I just checked my orientation, where the sun was. Yeah, okay. I'm pretty sure I know where I am. The path's down there. I went down. And maybe I took a little longer than I thought. So I'll just go a bit further, a bit further down, down, down. No path. I went up and down the side of that hill half a dozen times as it got dark. And all along I was sure, I know where the path is, it's just down here, I just haven't found it. And in the end I went back up the top and I thought, gosh, it's dark now, I better 
find some, I was just started gathering a pile of leaves and grass and thinking, okay, it's going to be cold, but it's Australia in February. It's not going to be that cold. There are some scary creatures out here. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and then suddenly it dawned on me. Because all the time I was thinking, I know where the path is, it's just down there. It suddenly dawned on me. I realized, you know, you do not know where the path is. And it was like a lightning bolt went through my body. I can almost feel the resonance of it when I speak of it now. It's like the shock and the fear and the terror. I'm lost. I don't know where I am. I don't know where the path is. And within a couple of microseconds, this whole image of, you know, Yanai dying on the top of this mountain. The retreatants arriving for the beginning of the retreat, coming into the first sitting. And where is the teacher? But a moment after that, and just through my body, this charge of energy, of shock, of fear, of terror. But then clarity. It was like, you don't know where the path is. Which means that where you say and think it is and where you've been looking, it's not down there. That's the only thing you know. It's not down where you think it is. And as the moon came out and some light came, I thought, okay. I'll just start to quarter. Like go take, I'll just move my orientation like 25, 30 degrees. I'll go down there. If it's not down there, I'll come back up. I'll do the same. So I just did that shift, went down. There was the path. Really interesting. Mildly embarrassing, <laughs> but remarkable. I was stuck. I was trapped. I could not get off or out of that place, because I believed I knew where the path was. Only when I was able to admit and acknowledge and face the fear of what that meant, to not know where it was, could I then start to creatively look and explore. And actually, in the end, quite quickly discover where the path actually was. I think it's like that for us. We come into a situation like this and we have a kind of sense, this is how you go about sorting out a human life. This is where the path should be. This is how I should do it. Now, if it works in whatever you're doing with regard to that, great, go for it, keep going that way. But if something in you has actually worked out or started to notice that actually, no, I'm just going up and down, looking in the place where I think it should be, and it's not there. It does not tell you where the path is, but once you know where it's not, that's actually a useful piece of information. It's not doing more of what I've been doing already. It's going to mean trying something different, which will be a little scary, maybe, or unsettling. But full of possibility. And this is really what our practice invites us to enter into, the possibility that is here for us. If we allow ourselves to rest a little more in not predicting and not knowing and not assuming, we know anything that much more than just right here where I am. That we can know. I knew exactly where I was on the mountain. It was here. Where I needed to go took a little time to find. It's like that for us but we can't do it unless we're willing to enter that territory of uncertainty, of not knowing. 
of trusting something in our heart's capacity to explore this life. Giving less authority to the mind's belief, the conceiving mind's belief that it knows it. So learning to rest in uncertainty is the, in a way the balance to this tendency to become fixed on and attached to. When we see views and positions arriving in the mind, I think we mentioned this already, just rather than trying to negate them, like with doubting thoughts, rather than trying to argue the opposite, just maybe, maybe not. Maybe the path's down there. Maybe it isn't. Let's see. Let's see. As uh, Voltaire observed, and I've never studied or read Voltaire, I heard this quote when someone else used it and rather liked it. Um, He apparently said, doubt is indeed an uncomfortable condition. But certainty? Certainty is ridiculous. So I'm just going to briefly touch on the fourth great attachment because I think we'll speak to it further along the retreat as we go. The, the fourth realm or area of attachment that the Buddha pointed to is the attachment to the sense of self. The idea of who we are. The way in which we conceive and define and relate to ourselves based on roles on experiences, on our history, on our possessions, on our relationships, on the very qualities and even the experiences that we encounter in our lives that so easily lead to a sense of comparison, a sense of evaluation, a sense of judgment or disappointment, of deflation or inflation. And so much are involved in this process of trying to become. Trying to become better. Trying to become good. Trying to become an enlightened someone. Or even trying to become a liberated someone. We need to look at this process to see what happens, to see how we become entangled with the sense of self. The sense of self in itself is not something to be made a problem of, but to be understood. The Buddha's teachings aren't saying there isn't such a thing, but they're suggesting to us that we need to look at it and see and understand what is it that's happening here that we're calling the sense of self. Because the sense is an experience. It doesn't refer to something in the way we imagine it to. But the experience itself is powerful and needs to be understood. And this invites us to, again, explore this realm of letting go of our beliefs about who and what it is that we imagine or conceive ourselves to be. There's so much of our preoccupation, if you really look at what goes on in our minds, you know, is about this. As uh, one teacher observed, I thought, rather wonderfully, They said, you would spend a lot less time worrying about what other people think of you if you realized how little time they spend doing it. (laughs) Because we're all thinking about me. 
we're all thinking mostly about ourselves. Even the thoughts about what other people think about me are thoughts about myself. And everyone else is doing that too. This preoccupation needs to be examined, to be understood, and ultimately to be released. So much of the weight, the authority, the significance we give to experiences because it is being used to affirm or negate a particular sense of who I take myself to be. It's not just that I want to have a nice meditation because I like the meditation. It's because I want to become a good meditator. Not, I don't just struggle with the time my mind goes crazy and I can't be present for more than half a moment because that's uncomfortable, and it is uncomfortable, but because it leads me to the conclusion that somehow I'm a failed meditator. As if those experiences were a basis for self-definition when all they're telling us is this is what happened, and this is what happened, and then this is what happened. So it is a profound act of compassion to ourselves to begin to release that sense of self-definition, being drawn from experience. And just allow experience to be what it is. Allow this field of experiencing to be what it is, to receive our life fully, just as it is, without putting demands on it. And that demanding or that pressure being the the marker of attachment. When there is attachment, there is pressure upon And freedom, liberation, in one way we can understand that is the release of that pressure. So I'll finish with a poem by David White entitled Enough. He says, Enough. These few words are enough. If not these words, this breath if not this breath, this sitting here, opening to the life we have refused again and again until now. Enough. These few words are enough. If not these words, this breath, if not this breath, this sitting here, opening to the life we have refused again and again until now. So let's just sit quietly for a few moments together. May we all in our practice here together and in our lives, may we come to know the heart's release from binding, from attachment, and the 
and the sweetness of a life unbound. For our own welfare and for the welfare of all beings. So thank you for your presence here and for your practice. Please continue. I have the next sitting at uh, quarter to nine. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.